Hey there, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Hire a Geek Podcast, episode number 80 with Burke Smith, who is the CEO and founder of Straighter Line, a company, a hybrid tech company here locally in Baltimore, uh, doing great work nationally. Um, so I was really excited to uh, catch Burke for a brief conversation here um, and hope to uh, uh, be able to uh, meet him in person and visit their offices soon um, since uh, you know, I recorded this a while ago before all the stuff currently that's going on. So I'm just kind of working through my library of content. Um, you know, <laughs> don't have much, uh, uh, you know, many other places to be or right now, other than just kind of working from home and uh, hanging out under uh, social distancing and physical distancing and all that kind of good stuff. So uh, still glad that I can uh, put out uh, this great content for you. Appreciate you all so much for listening. Um, I know podcasts are giving me uh, quite a bit of comfort right now uh, and seeing a lot of people still creating some really great content, um, even though we're all uh, stuck at home. So yeah, without uh, further ado, this is episode number 80 with Burke Smith. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, thanks again so much for jumping on for the podcast here. Um, I uh, live in Baltimore, so I've heard a lot about uh, Straight Alliance. So I'm excited to learn, uh, learn more about your story and uh, all the great work that you're doing and your team is doing and everything. So uh, we will start at the beginning, though, if you want to give everybody a brief uh, introduction of who you are and your professional journey of how you got to be where you are today. Sure. Um, my name is Burke Smith. I am currently the CEO and founder of Straighter Line. Uh, and if I go uh, sort of go back to the beginning, uh, the long story for the professional journey is in the mid 90s. Uh, I was in grad school um, and, uh, and for public policy and was really interested in what technology should do for education. And this was, you know, uh, internet had become a thing in like 1992, obviously been around forever, but it hit the popular culture about 1992, right. 93. And so people were trying to figure out what the internet was going to do to the world. And I was interested in education. And it seemed to me that uh, online delivery is much cheaper than face-to-face. -face, so that should solve some of the problems we'd identified, uh, particularly in higher ed, but also in K-12. Um, and even then, the problems of high prices, um, of high debt, of uh, uh, non-completion of debt with no degree were already there and they've only gotten worse. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I thought more about um, how that might play out, it became clear to me that it was unlikely that colleges were going to lower their prices themselves because of how the industry was structured. Um, and, uh, and there was an opportunity for someone to do it, uh, not just an opportunity, but if it was going to happen, someone was going to have to force that. And so uh, started an online tutoring company in 1999 called Smart Thinking. And uh, the idea behind Smart Thinking was that you aggregate the demand for tutors and the supply of tutors and then can create a service into which colleges can buy. And it worked. Um, and it also paved the way for Straighter Line by creating a, essentially an academic labor model that um, could support Straighter Line's coursework. And today, uh, Smart Thinking is still around. Um, it's, maybe the largest online tutoring provider in higher ed. Pearson owns it. Um, Straightline started as a division of it in 2008 and it became its own company in 2009. Uh, that was four years before MOOCs, that was before boot camps, before prior learning assessment became as big as it is. Um, and uh, the idea behind Straightline was that um, general education coursework is uh, highly standardized across schools, represents about a third of all enrollments in higher ed. Uh, and uh, it's highly transferred among schools. And so there's an opportunity to really reduce prices for students if you could create low cost 
general education pathways. So that's what Straight Law did. We offer about 60 of those courses, $99 a month by pricing it at a low price and on a subscription basis, it's low cost and low risk. For colleges that work with us, it is a um, way to attract new students, increase yield and increase persistence. And uh, we've done a few things over the few, uh, last few years that have um, evolved that but the core is still reasonably similar, is that students can take online gen ed coursework very affordably, lower their price and risk of a degree, or increasingly colleges send students to us to do that and, uh, and increase, yield and persist, increase yield and persistence. And so uh, fast forward, you know, 2020, um, we enrolled about 35,000 students last year, growing reasonably quickly. Uh, there, we're not the only ones in the space anymore. There's lots of others, MOOCs, competitors to us and more. And uh, this kind of alternative credit pathway, if you will, or non-traditional provider um, is increasingly popular. Yeah, and that's yeah, just an incredible story. And I guess, um, yeah, I mean, a couple of things that you're saying there, I guess, I'm just kind of curious like uh, to dig in with, but because um, I think, yeah, like you were saying, like there's definitely a, like on like the positive side, the idea of these institutions, these colleges and universities have been around for a very long time and they've done things you know, the same way they've been doing them for a very long time and, you know, kind of coming in with a different perspective to kind of drive some change, but still be working with those institutions, like working with their sort of, um, you know, their brands and their credibility and like really kind of uh, shepherding students uh, with that really good, flexible, low cost option and everything. Um, yeah, just like so great for me. And I think, you know, I guess what I'm curious in terms of like, you know, coming in with the uh, you know, you're, it's from what you were kind of saying, like, it sounds like you were sort of observing from the outside, uh, you know, these sort of issues and everything. So I'm curious, like, part of your own origin story to kind of zoom in a little bit of like, with your own college experience and all that learning and, you know, uh, the community building, anything like that, that you were doing, you know, when you were in college, like, how do you feel like that still resonates with you today in terms of, you know, the, the work that you're doing, or just kind of how you uh, operate and work with other people or anything, just whatever comes to mind in terms of that part of your, your own origin story. Yeah, I don't think um, my college origin story is what drove my perspective on higher ed today. Uh, I had a fabulous college experience, uh, went to Williams College, four-year traditional student, you know, the standard, what used to be the standard journey, which is graduate at 18, go to college for four years, you know, come of age. Um, my major was political theory, so it was uh, you know, very philosophical, and, mm -hmm. um, uh, and it was great. And, uh, but that wasn't the problem that we were having as an industry in the late 90s and um, thereafter. The, uh, the problem was around price and debt, um, and then also non-traditional students who had not necessarily been successful the first time around, and we were trying to figure out how to make them successful. And students who have priority, uh, students who are, have gone into the college system, the higher ed system, and stopped out at some point, uh, and are older, have very different priorities than the 18 to 22 year old. So um, I had a wonderful college experience, um, but I don't think that's really what drove the, um, certainly the straighter line and the smart thinking, and is also not what's driving the sort of the higher ed market today. Hmm. Yeah, well, I guess it's good at least not like having the self-awareness that it's kind of like uh, <laughs> different from where we are now, because I think that it can be holding people back where it's just like, oh, what I had is what everybody else should have, or that's the one and only way or something like that. So it's at least good, refreshing. But because, um, yeah, I always just like hearing um, if there are, and I think it's, you know, interesting, yeah, when people kind of recognize like, well, you know, it's interesting, you know, I didn't have it. And it may be that like, it's, 
you know, if it's like, well, I, you know, I went into it, maybe not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but I just kind of was like coasting and wanting to really empower students now to, um, you know, again, just being able, able to go into it with, uh, you know, less risk and those sort of, you know, like you can go through and kind of get gen ed courses out of the way and um, maybe still be able to work and not have to like disrupt your life or anything like that. You know, there's, a lot of good opportunities, I think, you know, even if it's not like, oh, like these life-changing moments for me in college or something like that, it's just like, well, you know, I kind of just like did the thing that everybody else did, but, you know, I'd want other people to be able to really like feel empowered to, uh, you know, um, go into higher ed with more, I guess. Yeah, I wish I had, I wish I had that story. (laughs) It it isn't. No, mine, it was very much, you know, um, in grad school for public policy and um, looking at kind of a big social problem and trying to fix it. And uh, less about, hey, here's my experience and I want to replicate it or, you know, I want to uh, or, or, you know, either replicate it or fix what was my experience. But it's more that we have this problem of uh, price and debt and lack of success. And there seem to be tools that are that can help with that. And actually, there are uh, models for that in other industries, um, but it's not happening in higher ed uh, for good reasons. And um, how do we then fix that? And so I think in an alternate universe, I would have ended up in nonprofits or government somewhere. But uh, but the way to attack this problem was to start a company to kind of prove it because um, the entities, typically foundations and government and colleges, um, aren't built to look at themselves self-critically uh, if the problem is their kind of ongoing funding structure, which is sort of prohibiting change. Well, then, you know, that does, you know you've talked a lot about you know, the work that you're doing now with Trader Line. So, you know, you've been at this for, uh, yeah, I guess, like a decade. Uh, so, like, you know, it's obviously a very big, complex problem that you're working at solving and everything. So what kind of, you know, what do you enjoy most about your current work? Like, what's keeping you engaged and excited or anything like that, I guess, that you'd want to explore a little bit with uh, the work that you're doing now? Yeah, so a lot of interesting stuff. Um, it's really three things. You know, when we started, it was very much um, targeted at, at um students who had not yet figured out where they wanted to go to college. So they would come to us, take coursework, and then transfer their credit to the colleges with whom we had agreements. Um, and that's working, and it's still um, a, a chunk of our students, so it is the minority of our students who are, who are using us for that purpose. Over the past uh, six or seven years, we have started working with colleges where they send us students. So colleges have students that are uh, they can't admit right away for whatever reason. They may need prerequisites. They may need math and writing help. They may not be ready for online. They may want to start immediately, but the semester doesn't start till a certain date uh, for yeah. whatever reason. Um, or they have students that are already enrolled and are at risk. They're running up against financial aid caps or need uh, summer scheduling or don't want to maintain the two-course minimum for financial eligibility or need to rehabilitate their academic profile or dropouts um, who have some of the same problems but are thinking about coming back in. And so for the past six or seven years, we've been working with schools where they refer those students to us. They take some coursework and then uh, if successful, they return. We have great outcome data about how that impacts yield for student uh, for colleges as well as uh, persistence. That's really exciting. So in addition to having students being referred to us really last May, we started white labeling that. So we're doing it under a school's brand as opposed to under our brand. And the principle is that, you know, by lowering the cost and risk for students to solve their problems, uh, you're able to uh, solve them in ways that traditional delivery can't. So that's one thing that's been interesting. Um, And then second, uh, we are also now working with employers 
where um, they are offering uh, programs to their employees uh, with straight line coursework comprising about the first half of the degree, either associates or um, bachelors. And uh, by doing that, they're able to dramatically lower that price of the first year or two of a degree uh, and front load the savings such that sort of it further decreases the overall cost of a degree. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're pretty excited about that. We'll have uh, uh, with the partner with whom we're working, it will be, uh, we'll be launching an associate's degree of nursing, early childhood associate's degree, and then online bachelor's program. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, it's sort of um, <laughs> a really good incentive for the employer if it's just like, yeah, we have sort of this like pool of money we want to use for, you know, professional educational development and those sort of things. It's like, what's the most sort of, uh, you know, effective way to use those dollars? Because I think that can be a problem where it's like, well, we do have a benefit, but like, you know, obviously, again, like the, the very high cost of, you know, getting a degree, it's like, well, that only gets me so far. So I got to like go like one course at a time with like a traditional um, sort of model. So yeah, it's really smart if it's just like, yeah, you know, like you can get further with whatever sort of funding you have, I guess is sort of what I assume well, is probably. It's also going to transform the market, I think. Um, you know, it used to be that tuition reimbursement policies and benefits were, you know, kind of held in the back room, if you will, you know, employers had them, but didn't really want to use them because it was expensive. So they would reserve it for, you know, mid-level and upper level employees and, um, and then create all sorts of barriers to actually accessing it. Uh, if you drive the price down um, and front load the savings and drive the price down by five or six fold, um, that changes what an employer can think about using these programs for. So now they can push these programs to frontline employees um, both as an upskilling option and as a retention uh, uh, retention value. So um, changing the price point changes the value proposition that employers have for using this. It also starts to um, blend what is a fairly arbitrary distinction between training and education. So employers train and colleges educate, but that's kind of arbitrary and colleges are certainly trying to train and create job skills and employers are certainly trying to educate. And if you drive the price way, way down, then, uh, and employers are, act, are, are offering coursework through new providers like ourselves and others, uh, then that, um, that distinction starts to blur. And so I do think that um, changing the price for employers over the next you know, maybe two to 10 years is really gonna change how employers and employees um, educate. Yeah, for sure. And then just all those other things you mentioned too, of kind of the like Swiss army knife of like, you know, how you can help support students of like all those things you mentioned in terms of really expanding the way that you uh, work with universities to, you know, all of those things I think are, I'm sure resonating with people of just those common little uh, sort of hurdles and the barriers and things that just create friction. And, you know, at best it might just slow a student down or they have to like maybe take a term off and they come right back or something but it's like you know there could be a better way that they you know their, their sacrifices don't have to happen and it really being kind of you know you kind of just whip it out you know in terms of just like okay well you're experiencing this issue so we can kind of use this tool in this way and um really help to um you know alleviate that for the students so it's just really cool to hear of just all those different ways that you're uh you know helping students uh, pursue their uh, degrees and everything so um well, I guess with all of this, like, you know, and it may be just continuing in terms of like just the way that you look at your work and kind of uh, work with your team and everything, like, and maybe it's more personal or more professional, but like, 
what are you geeking out about right now if, if it is like related to your work or things that are just kind of more personally fulfilling? I'm just curious kind of what's, uh, what's grabbing your attention right now? Sure. Well, some that are sort of related to work and others that aren't, but the sort of related to work is, um, and, and this is a personal interest as opposed to a uh, work interest, but um, applying the same principles to high schools. The, um, I wrote a, a book chapter about it a decade ago, uh, and, uh, um, but then haven't done much since. But that um, same thing, online delivery, online anything should uh, drive the price of delivery down. And um, what has happened in colleges is over the last two decades, colleges have essentially captured the value of that um, instead of passing it to students in the form of lower prices. Um, the same happens in high schools, but in high school, or rather in colleges, there is the model, there's some level of consumer choice. There is a market, a dysfunctional market, but a market nonetheless uh, that does not exist in high schools. So how do you build something similar to, um, to deliver the benefits of, of uh, any kind of technology use to students. And to be clear, it's not necessarily pro or con online delivery. It is that if someone does choose online delivery, there should be some other benefits that flow from it. And so, uh, so I'm really interested in how an alternative high school might be built where uh, for students who have what I've called opted out of high school, and that would be dropouts, chronic absentees, working teens, homeschoolers, et cetera. Uh, those for, that have chosen not to enroll in traditional high schools, even though it is free, um, how can you build a different model for them? And my idea is that um, if you take their per student allocations and let them allocate it to different services, um, both ex academic and extracurricular at different prices, so an expensive face-to-face -face or an online, you know, a cheap online course, and then the surplus can be used for other relevant services like transportation vouchers or computers or, you know, professional clothing or, uh, you know, OVO lessons or test prep or job skills, who knows what, but yeah. it, uh, it creates a very different way to um, tailor educational services to create competition among providers and to rethink the way uh, we consider quality um, or really to move the idea of quality to one of value rather than quality. So that's interesting. I'm kind of pushing around all that personally. Um, joined a couple of boards of schools here in Baltimore. Um, one's a charter school, charter middle school, and one's a private school. Um, so all that's exciting. Um, Non-education related stuff. Uh, I've got three teenage boys, one of whom is a freshman in college. Um, they, uh, they keep me busy. Um, the, uh, and they're also, you know, uh, 14, 16, and 18, the 18s out of the house. So I can start to see the, the horizon where, you know, I'll uh, have more, more non-family time or non-kid time um, with my, my wife and I can explore. So that's, uh, that's exciting. Um, you know, Baltimore guy, love the sports teams here. Ravens have been fun. Love the Maryland Terrapins, so I do follow that. Uh, stay in shape reasonably. A lot of outdoor stuff, you know, biking when it's warmer, um, uh, swimming, hiking, et cetera. So that keeps me busy. Yeah, that's all great stuff. And I guess, I mean, I have to imagine, I mean, just really being like, plugged into the Baltimore community too of yeah just being able to I mean give back by like yeah like uh joining these uh boards and everything but then also just like uh really I guess like I don't know like you kind of I'm sure maybe like draw inspiration or just kind of you know meet people and hear stories or anything like that of just really being you know invested in uh, the community of the city and everything so I think there's just um I mean I've, I've been here for now it's just over three years um 
but uh, uh, yeah, it's just like, I think it's cool to me uh, seeing a lot of the uh, really interesting work a lot of people are doing and um, and then yeah, there's just like so much fun stuff to do too. <laughs> yeah, like you know, you yeah. Know, sports teams and like food and just like all this cool stuff. So um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I grew up here and, uh, and then moved back after uh, sort of when I started Straight Line, I was in Smart Thinking was in DC and then moved back here in Straight Line about a decade ago and, uh, and love the city and uh, would love to figure out how to make it better. It's, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do, um, but, uh, but certainly doing what I can. Yeah. Um, well, then I guess also I'm curious, like anything in particular that you are uh, reading, watching, listening to like stuff that's, again, maybe personally fulfilling or professionally relevant, um, anything that comes to mind of, you know, podcast books, uh, documentaries, anything like that, that you might want to recommend. We can, uh, yeah, I'm uh, not necessarily recommend. I'm a kind of a omnivorous reader. I actually try not to program my reading too much or even the mm -hmm. sort of take what comes. People give you a book and read that or sitting around and read that. Sometimes you pick one, you read that. So I'm not, um, you know, I just serendipitously realized the last, I think three of the last four books I've read have been about um, food. So I read a book about uh, the truffle industry, which apparently is a, um, uh, there's a lot of um, deep, dark secrets in the truffle industry, uh, bananas, uh, wine, read books about that. But then generally I read a fair bit of sci-fi stuff. I read a lot of a uh, fair bit of, you know, philosophy and uh, theory stuff, which is kind of fun. And then kind of more good literature, I guess, maybe more, um, relevant is what I don't read much of. I really don't meet, read much of the business books. Um, the, uh, I find that the advice is often contradictory. <laughs> and right. so is it all that useful? Um, so, uh, so, you know, no particular recommendations, but I, I uh, definitely read a lot as my, um, uh, as uh, sort of entertainment and relaxation. That's cool. And I guess yeah, it's helpful in the sense of, you know, like you're saying, not being, terribly restrictive on your like a pretty wide you know diverse diet of things to yeah just kind of activate different parts of you know just sort of um your perspective or anything of just like looking in the world maybe in a different way um because yeah i sometimes get caught in that sort of vortex i think it like of just the sort of like leadership or business books and stuff like that so i've been trying to um you know veer out a little bit yeah because i think sometimes i'm reading them and it's kind of just like you know almost like junk food reading or something because it might just be like yeah either contradictory or they're all just kind of the same the same things in, the, in different ways or something so it's just um maybe not the uh you know most fruitful uh reading because i i, I guess it's hard for me too because like i don't really read as much i get a lot of podcasts and movies and tv and like you know all these other things so um i'll like circle around just kind of be like ah, i don't know i don't think i guess this is relevant but like it's not maybe like the best thing that i should be reading but yeah yeah so i don't i you know i um want to do more podcasts and such. I have it. I don't do much. I actually, you know, instead will actually read as opposed to listening. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, that's, um, that's my, 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 pa my pastime when, when my downtime is reading. Well then uh, we'll end on the optimistic note that I always love to wrap up on. So uh, what is something or are some things that you're looking forward to in your job, life and or the world? So anything on your mind just yet yeah, that you're optimistic about looking forward to? Sure. Well, so I think, you know, I think for all the education work, whether it's higher ed or K-12, you know, there is a lot of doom and gloom about what higher ed looks like um, or even K-12 looks like, you know, in the next decade. And I, and I think that is at some level right, because I think our institutions are going to look, um, 
pretty different, our education institutions. Um, but I think what has to be remembered is that that's really good for students, is that uh, uh, we have a lot of problems that they are facing around price and risk and debt, and, uh, and these are um, ways to reduce that. So uh, in many ways, what's happening is very promising for students going forward, which I think is really exciting. I'm eager to watch it um, unfold. Um, the uh, life, as I mentioned, you know, it's been, it is wonderful as a father of three teenage sons. Um, watching them get older and become uh, men themselves is exciting, go off to college and, uh, um, and, uh, and then also figure out my next stage. And then in the world is intriguing, you know, who knows? The, uh, uh, the political situation is chaotic uh, at best. And um, uh, we'll, I don't really have any insight beyond any, what, what anyone else might have, but it'd be very interesting to watch how we deal with our current political issues, climate, et cetera, over the next, uh, the next decade. So, uh, you know, may you, may you, uh, may you live in interesting times, right? Right. Right. And so nothing is not, uh, yeah, interesting, not, not, you know, just like happening all the time. So, you know, it's, uh, it's not boring, I guess you could say that for sure. That's right. Um, but uh, yeah, all good stuff. And I mean, um, yeah, we'll have ways to uh, connect with you and Streeter Line in the show notes. And um, certainly if there's anything else that you'd want to uh, kind of recommend or send my way to include, we can uh, do that as well. But um, yeah, just so great talking to you and kind of hearing about your story and the, the great work that um, you all are doing there and everything. And um, try and come visit uh, Streeter Line at some point since uh, right here in Baltimore. But yeah, please um, do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for your time and uh, yeah, just have a good rest of your day. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thank you for the, uh, the interview. It was fun. This podcast is part of the Connect EDU podcast network, bringing together diverse voices in the higher ed community. Check us out on Twitter at connectedupod or at connectedu.network. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of the Higher Ed Geek Podcast.